Welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance, lifelong partners for financial education. Learn more about our qualifications at www.libf.ac.uk. I'm very pleased to welcome our guest speaker, Luke Harding. Uh, on the topic of the Panama Papers, the inside story, uh, very topical at the moment. Uh, Luke uh, went to, uh, did a international baccalaureate diploma at the UWC Atlantic College and then studied English at the University College Oxford. He then went to a number of, couple of papers, uh, including the Daily Mail, before joining The Guardian in 1996. Uh, Luke is a journalist, a writer, and award-winning correspondent. He's worked from places like Delhi to um, Berlin to Moscow, and been a correspondent in the Syrian war, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya. You've got a death wish or something. <laughs> so, good. Um, in 2007, he became the business chief for The Guardian in Moscow and then famously was expelled by the Kremlin in 2011 for articles he wrote on the murder of Alexander Litvinenko. Um, in 2011, he also wrote a book on Wiki WikiLeaks, which was made into a film called The Fifth Estate with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, which was released in 2013. I've seen it, I don't know if anyone else here has. Um, and in 2014, he wrote a book, The Snowden Files, the story of the world's most wanted man, which has also been made into a film in December last year. And last year, he wrote a book uh, uh, about a very ex expensive um, poison, and that is the story of Alexander Letovenko and the murder by, or whatever you want to call it, perhaps not murder, by the Russians. And I'm sure that will become another film. So please give a very warm welcome to Luke Harding. Uh. Um, thank you very much. Uh, good evening. Um, it's um, having written quite a lot about bankers uh, over the past sort of couple of years. It's great to meet so many. I've never met so many bankers, and I, I hope we can have an encounter without you kind of tearing me apart. But um, we will do some questions at the end, and you're very welcome to ask me anything, and even even denounce me if you like, which is what I sometimes get from from people sent by the Russian embassy. So. Um, <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm talking about Panama Papers today, which is actually the largest sort of um, big investigation I've done, done recently. Um, and um, just to explain, uh, for those of you who, who don't know the story, it is an incredible story. I mean, we're, you know, Roy was just talking about Hollywood films, and actually the Panama Papers, I, I think, will at some point be a Hollywood film as well, because it's what happened is almost as a screenwriter might imagine it, because the, the two reporters who actually originally broke this story uh, both worked for a German newspaper in Munich called the Süddeutsche Zeitung. They're both called Obermeyers, although they're not actually related. One is called um, Bastian, the other is called Frederick. And, and during the course of this investigation, they became very good friends of mine, as well as collaborators. And, and as Bastian tells it, um, he was sitting at home with a kind of sick family in late 2015. It's about 10 p.m. and he flips open his laptop and you can, you can see this in the film. And this little message pops up from someone, he doesn't know who the hell it is, saying, interested in secret data. Um, and Bastian, being a cool kid, uh, just sort of types back, always interested in secret data, what is it? Um, and so he starts ping-ponging with this anonymous guy and he goes to sleep. 
and uh, wakes up the next morning and, and this guy, or it could be a woman, we don't know who it is, um, has sent him a kind of taster package of a couple of thousand sort of documents, um, which uh, are kind of highly intriguing. They're basically about offshore shell companies. They're from a, a, a famous, or I would say infamous Panamanian, Panamanian law firm called Mossack Fonseca. And they're kind of quite tantalizing. And this is, this is sort of really the beginning. And so um, Bastian continues these encrypted chats with his source. He sort of says to the source, you know, why are you doing this? And the source says, well, basically, I'm a kind of concerned citizen, no more. Um, but I'm also very worried about the ramifications of, of, of what I'm doing. Um, and um, I can't meet you. I can't tell you who I am. Um, uh, but, you know, here is some information which will lead to stories. The choice of stories is obviously up to you. So th 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 this is a sort of classic whistleblower kind of conversation, not dissimilar to the kind of conversation that my colleagues from The Guardian had with Edward Snowden, another whistleblower back in 2013 who um, leaked what at the time seemed like the, the, the biggest release, the most important release of secret documents ever, which I also worked on, uh, which were essentially kind of documents from GCHQ, the government eavesdropping agency, and from NSA, its American analog, which kind of lifted the lid on, on what I would call, uh, I would argue, as mass surveillance of everybody, including you, by, by the US and UK government. So, um, so this was clearly a whistleblower. Um, this was clearly someone who had kind of pretty um, sophisticated technical skills, who'd found some ingress into Mossack Fonseca. Now, we never found out who this person was. Uh, and we never found out whether they were a disgruntled employee working for this firm or someone who, who had hacked the firm from outside. We didn't know. But what we did know, that the, the, the documents we were, we, the, the Germans were getting were fascinating, uh, revealed <coughs> wrongdoing, and clearly there was a pretty compelling public interest in pursuing this story. So from this kind of late-night anonymous uh, chat with John Doe, that's the name that, that Bastian gave his source, John Doe, could have been Jane Doe, but anyway, um, so we, we really began on this kind of thrilling uh, year-long secret journalistic um, collaboration, which began with Bastian and Frederick in the Süddeutsche Zeitung. Fairly quickly, they got in touch with a, a group called the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the ICIJ, based out of Washington, D.C. Now, the ICIJ had done previous investigations into, I guess, what you call banking. They'd done Lux leaks, they'd done offshore leaks, which had been published and it had some kind of public resonance, but I, I wouldn't say that they had th these leaks had had global impact. Um, and we, um, we, we sort of got involved via the ICIJ, and, and so the number of journalists working on this project <coughs> grew. It, it eventually reached about 400 journalists working for 100 media organizations all over the world in about 80 different countries um, who were examining this kind of data set. Now, um, Bastian had some kind of amusing exchanges with the source about, about how much material would be involved. Uh, the source sort of said, it's a lot. Um, and it's, it's a lot. A lot turned out to be 11.5 million secret documents, which it would take you, if we were to sit you in the room next door, it would take you about 25 years to read it all before you could then go and have your dinner. You know, it's, a, it's an enormous volume of material. It's um, 2.6 terabytes, for those of you who are techies. I mean, it's just a colossal amount. And, and what was so extraordinary about this was that um, not only was it a leak, it was a leak which was being updated in real time. In other words, whoever it was, the source, had continued access to Mossack Fonseca's internal email database, 
uh, we're getting kind of incorporation documents, um, we're getting email chains and everything. Uh, and also, you know, so we began working on this material with the ICIJ and um, uh, we were based in, in what we call uh, the Guardian, we call the secret bunker, um, which is a complete misnomer, firstly because it's not a bunker, it's on the fourth floor. Uh, and there's a very nice view of Regent's Canal and you can see joggers and, and houseboats and moorhens and coots and traffic. Uh, and secondly, it's not really secret because it, it's been in two Hollywood films already, thanks to me, you know, the books I write, and they always visualize the secret bunker. But nonetheless, we're in the secret bunker um, and we're examining this material. And it was fascinating. I'm, 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 a, I'm a journalist. I mean, I read English at Oxford. I don't have a kind of background in banking, but, but we, we learned. We learned about uh, how anonymous shell companies are set up. We learned about normally fake, whatever you want to call it, directors. We learned about asset wealth management. We, we read email chains from asset wealth managers talking to their rich clients, some of whom were identified, some of whom weren't. We, we found all sorts of interesting material because very often, although not always, the beneficial owners of these anonymous companies were identified. So we saw passports. Uh, we saw electricity bills of some very famous people. We saw the due diligence that was being done, or in very many cases not being done, on, on some of these extremely shady clients. They weren't all shady, but many of them were shady. Um, and some of them were quite famous. Um, and so we were looking at this material. We were collaborating through two um, secret online platforms. Um, one of them was called the iHub, you know, small i then hub, which was like a kind of internal Facebook um, for journalists working on that project. So people in London, in Berlin, in, in Frankfurt, but also in Ecuador, uh, in the East Coast of the United States, in Russia. Um, and we were communicating basically via the iHub kind of securely. We would find stories, we'd find tips, we'd find interesting documents, we would post them, we would make jokes. Um, and and this, this, all, this was all going on internally. Um, we also had another platform which was called Blacklight, uh, where Mossack Fonseca's documents were kind of lodged. Um, and, and to get a hold of any of these platforms, we needed IDs, um, we needed or, or authenticators. I mean, it was extremely complicated to log in, but once you were in, we were pretty sure that, that we were s sort of secure. And so we started interrogating this material. Um, and meanwhile, it was like assembling a jigsaw piece, a jigsaw puzzle. We had like quite, a, we had enormous number of jigsaw pieces, so we're putting them all together. And then every three or four months, we'd get an email from the ICIJ saying that the, the source had uploaded another couple of million documents. Now, you know, five years ago, if someone had said, I've got two million documents for you, would have thought, that's fantastic. And after three or four of these episodes throughout sort of basically um, kind of 2015, you were just thinking, oh, God, two million more documents, you know. But, but what was interesting was that we, we could answer some of the questions we couldn't, we couldn't initially answer. Um, it just sort of filled in the gaps. So we, we started... Um, we started kind of assembling stories. We um, had a series of clandestine meetings in, uh, initially in, in Washington, then in Munich. Then, then we hosted a meeting in December 2015 in London with about 50 or 60 journalists coming to us at the Guardian's office in King's Cross. No one else who was um, <clears throat> not inducted in this project, you know, colleagues, for example, they didn't know about this. So it was all done kind of very covertly. I mean, we, we, we were ourselves a kind of rather scruffy, 
semi-organized sort of Leninist cell, if you like, kind of mm -hmm. communicating using encryption and, and PGP. Does anyone use PGP, by the way? Am I the only one that uses? No one uses PGP. Okay, well, it's a very good program. I'll talk more about it in a minute. But swapping encrypted emails, um, not really discussing anything openly, um, and. It was clear that Mossack Fonseca had no idea that, this, that, that, that their defenses had been breached. We came across emails where they were boasting to clients about the, the, the strength of their system and how they were unhackable and you know, their encryption uh, meant that they were secure 24 hours a day. All of these documents were stored by, guarded by armed guards in Panama, etc., etc., all of which turned out to be completely untrue. Um, and um, we were kind of moving uh, basically towards the publication date, which was uh, agreed to be April the 3rd of last year, April the 3rd, 2016. Um, and it was, it was exciting. It was sometimes um, kind of befuddling. I mean, you, you, once you've spent two hours looking at company and corporation documents, your eyes are kind of, I mean, some of you guys may have incorporated companies, your eyes are kind of popping out and you really need to go get a cup of coffee and take a break before you can take any more. Um, but it, it, it was extremely revealing, and the stories which I'll talk about began to kind of cohere. We, we swapped drafts with each other. Um, and I, I kind of, we had two big fears, basically, doing this project. That the first fear was that our investigation involving 400 journalists would leak, that the leak would itself leak. Because <clears throat> I mean, journalists are not like bankers. We're, we're, we're sort of pathologically indiscreet. I mean, if, if you want to sort of get information out of us, you know, buy us one drink and we'll tell you everything we know <laughs> and more. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's very easy to get a journalist to talk about stuff. Um, and so we thought someone would talk. Someone would kind of maybe accidentally tweet some of this material before our kind of embargo, um, that, that it would go wrong. Um, and incredibly, it didn't. I mean, everyone held the line. No one, uh, uh, no one did anything kind of um, wrong. And we, we sort of kept going. So anxiety number one, that it would leak. Anxiety number two was that when we published this material, the Panama Papers, which, by the way, is quite, I, I think it's quite a sexy title. It's echoed on the Pentagon Papers, which, for those of you who are, who are young, because some of you are young, uh, what was the famous leak by, by Daniel Ellsberg in 1971 of basically US government material which kind of revealed the, the true nature of the American war in Vietnam. Uh, so we, we, we've settled on the Panama Papers, and we were worried that when we published the Panama Papers, nobody would kind of care, because it's, it's, it's banking, it's offshore, it's secrecy, it's all a bit complicated, it's Panama, um, and that it just wouldn't get any kind of public resonance. Um, and, and of course, we, we were we were wrong. On, you know, we were wrong about about that. And and we, we did um, publish um, uh, at about six p.m. Uh, on uh, April the third. It, it was quite a moment. Süddeutsche published. Someone called Edward Snowden tweeted about this material about ten minutes before the Süddeutsche Zeitung site went live. Um, and this was quite kind of quite intriguing because I don't think actually that Edward Snowden is the source of this stuff. But we did wonder whether he might have been. Um, anyway, I think he's not the source, but nonetheless, he was clearly across this, and he tweeted very early on. And um, then the story kind of caught fire, and it took off, and it, and it dominated um, 
dominated everything for for a while. It even it was even the front page of the um, of the Daily Express, which normally splashes on how wonderful Brexit is, and we're all going to be super rich because Brexit is so marvelous. Or on Princess Diana, you know, or Maddie. They basically have three splashes, but even they went with the Panama Papers because. We had we had some great stories. We we had a, a story about Russia that I'll talk about in a minute, but we also had a story about David Cameron, um, whom we found in the Panama Papers, not directly, um, but through his father, who who, who ran a offshore um, fund basically uh, for, for most of his life, w w was essentially working in that industry. And um, what we found was just actually uh, when we saw the material originally, we thought that it wasn't so sensational. But it, what it spoke to was the sheer artificiality of this arrangement. So essentially. David Cameron's dad was running a Bahamas-based trust. Essentially, all of its business was being conducted in London. But once or twice a year, they had a meeting in the Bahamas um, with um, sort of essentially fake nominee directors, one of whom was a part-time bishop who, who was hired to sign the paperwork. Um, and essentially, what, what this little mini-story did was it was a sort of little parable that... that this arrangement was, was fake. It wasn't a real arrangement, although it was legal. We were not, not at any point suggesting illegality. But it told us that, that David Cameron's family wealth essentially was privileged offshore wealth, albeit legally obtained. Um, and Cameron, as, as you all know, had been making very strong noises about, about moving against offshore, about in, in, introducing transparency, about clamping down on British overseas jurisdictions, um, which were, were facilitating... Um, some stuff which was legal and some stuff which I think it was, was illegal. Um, and, and Cameron made the, the, he made the great mistake of, of, of trying to kind of stonewall. So we asked him about this fund. We asked him whether he had shares in this company called Blairmore. Um, we had a very uncomfortable conversation with his press spokesman who's subsequently been knighted, who essentially told us to piss off, uh, <laughs> that this was a private matter and Mr. Cameron would not be commentating on our, on our grubby little inquiries. Um, and um, the problem was this line didn't really hold. And by, by the Monday, Tuesday after we published, every single newspaper, the Mail, the Express, the Financial Times, the Times were all splashing on the Cameron story. Then Cameron uh, admitted through gritted teeth that, in fact, he'd, he'd flogged his shares in Dad's offshore company just before he became prime minister in 2010. And there, there were about £30,000 worth. Um, and it became very, very uncomfortable. And um, subsequently emerged that he, he actually had come close to resigning. He didn't resign, but they had contemplated that he would resign over, over our story. That was one scenario that they actively discussed. Um, um, and of course, as you all know, three months later he was gone anyway, having, having messed up with Brexit and the referendum. So, so viewed in retrospect, it was the Panama Papers was kind of the beginning of the end for David Cameron, I think. So, so the story had um, tremendous traction. Various things happened. The Prime Minister of Iceland, who um, was in the Panama Papers with his wife with an offshore company, which he'd, he'd, he'd somehow neglected to mention to the Icelandic Parliament, uh, was forced to resign. Um, and if you look on YouTube, there's this exquisite footage um, of the Prime Minister being confront confronted by a Swedish TV crew, where they ask him about the name of this company, which we had, via the leak. And his face does a kind of wobbling sort of aghast smile thing and then he kind of storms out of the interview um, so um, he went there were protests in Argentina because the new uh, the new president um, was was in the in the Panama Papers there was in Azerbaijan I wrote stories about that that there was a 
inexplicably, there was a small war which lasted about three or four days between Azerbaijan um, and Armenia over a disputed territory. So that kind of flared up and flared down. And certainly opposition bloggers in, in Azerbaijan th thought it was to kind of deflect from embarrassing revelations about Azerbaijan's president and his daughters. Um, and it was just, it was, a, it was a great story that I think kind of had tremendous kind of um, resonance. Now, I mean, the, the part of the story that I worked on specifically with my background, which Roy mentioned, was Russia. I, I, I spent four years in Russia. I was kicked out of Russia. One of the stories I'd been working on when I was in Russia um, and published on back in 2007 was about Vladimir Putin's personal fortune because Putin, um, who, by the way, is very small. He's about this tall. He's a tiny, <laughs> tiny guy. Um, and I'd be very interested to see the first meeting with Trump, how they kind of <laughs> measure up with one another because they seem to be very good friends. Um, so, but anyway, so, so Putin officially leads the life of a kind of modest, ordinary citizen with a salary of about $100,000 a year, a second-hand car and a small flat. Officially, that's what he earns. But everybody inside the Russian elite, and actually the US Treasury Department, and MI6, and most Western governments know that in reality, Putin is probably the richest person on the planet, uh, worth many, many, many billions of dollars, um, none of which you know, if we go to, say, if we go to Credit Suisse in Geneva and say, you know, hello, Credit Suisse, do you have an account in the name of Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin? They'll say, well, well we're terribly sorry, we've got nothing in that name. And um, so the way that Putin's wealth is structured is it's done via proxies. Uh, a group of kind of essentially ex-KGB people at the top of the Russian state who collectively are, are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Now, I did, my story in 2007 suggested that Putin was worth about $40 billion via undisclosed holdings in uh, oil and gas companies, um, including one in Switzerland called Gunvor, which was subsequently sanctioned by the US Treasury, which said, which said precisely what I printed before. Um, put, by the way, Putin sort of denies all this, but the, the, but the, the kind of, the, the sort of, the mystery over Putin's money was a kind of holy grail for investigative journalists. We'd, we'd been, chasing this for a long time. And along comes the Panama Papers, uh, and we found pretty early on that um, someone called Sergei Roldugin um, was at the hub of a kind of rather complicated um, scheme. But we, we found about $2 billion in transactions going into Sergei Roldugin's offshore accounts. Now, uh, there were 200 transactions, more or less. The money went from Bank Rossier in St. Petersburg. It was then administered by a group of respectable-looking lawyers in, in Geneva. From there, it went uh, to, to Panama and, and Mossack Fonseca, and then into various BVI companies, which Mossack Fonseca had incorporated and whose documents we had, as well as emails between MF, Mossack Fonseca, and the Swiss and the Russians. And then this money was recycled into Russia, having essentially been laundered, I think stolen, we can say, from, from, from Bank Russia, laundered and spent on various things including uh, on the ski resort where Vladimir Putin's daughter got married, uh, which, which where millions were sort of shoveled into the sort of ski resort. So we had a kind of perfect cycle. Um, and we also investigated Sergei Roldugin, who just turned out to be Putin's best friend uh, from the 1970s. Um, he was, or he is, he's a cello player um, and who gave an interview to the New York Times saying that he was a humble musician um, who was not interested in worldly goods, he too had a second-hand car and a, and a, and a Dacia, mm. etc. 
Um, but it turned out that he'd known Putin since the, since the 1970s. Uh, he had introduced Putin to Putin's uh, wife, now ex-wife, called Ludmilla, who was an Aeroflot stewardess, and they'd been on a double date uh, in the Lens Soviet cinema. Um, and he was godfather to Putin's daughter, um, Maria. So there was a clear kind of connection. Um, and we um, published this story, basically, on our, on our front page um, about having found sort of Putin's money. And, and the Putin story was the best story from the Panama Papers. The Cameron story was, we thought, okay, but not kind of sensational. The Putin story, of course, exploded, and, and then nothing, because in Russia itself, Vladimir Putin denied everything. Um, you have to understand that in Russia, practically all of the state media, all of the media is under the Kremlin's thumb, so they don't report critically in any way. He said <clears throat> that th these billions were not stolen, they were used to import musical instruments into Russia in a patriotic way. Uh, that, that was the official explanation for the $2 billion that we'd found in Panama Papers. And the Kremlin basically sort of sought to, to, to shut the story down. Whereas the Cameron story just kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but I guess that's the difference between writing stories about an authoritarian state run by a quasi-dictator and in, in a democracy, which I think the UK probably just about still is. Um, so um, I just, I've just got a few kind of um, sort of observations before I kind of move, move, move to questions. Um, I mean, with, without wanting to kind of offend anybody here, I mean, what, what, what I found kind of most sort of revealing about the Panama Papers w was not in a way that kleptocrats, that, you know, rich people from Russia or, or Azerbaijan uh, or South America would, would make money in dubious circumstances and offshore it. I mean, that, that in a way, wasn't surprising, although the, the detail was often very kind of fascinating. Um, what was surprising, what I hadn't realized, is that there's a whole layer of essentially Western lawyers, accountants, company formation agents that facilitate this, that, 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 that make it happen, that, that in a way I would say that, that people in this country, people in, in Europe, in, in the West generally, are, are co-complicit in allowing the system to happen where offshore can be legal but offshore can also be ab abused. And it was kind of depressing. I mean, um, we, we were seeing documents that no one ever thought would see the light of day. So I'll give you one example. There was a uh, basically a kind of a, a law firm in Knightsbridge just uh, overlooking the Queen's private garden um, which you google it I shan't name it but it looks absolutely kind of respectable it, it specializes in high-end real estate um, and it, its website is, is a black Georgian front door with stucco topiary trees you know you can rely on us etc we, we offer X Y and Z um, and we found documents from this firm where they were setting up an offshore company via Mossack Fonseca in the BVI for um, the president of Azerbaijan's daughters. Uh, and there's a very simple compliance form they have to fill in. And it says, are these clients, you know, we knew they're the president of Azerbaijan's daughters, politically exposed people? Yes or no? And the London law firm ticked no. <laughs> <laughs> Blindly carried on because they knew that this would incur extra cost. I don't know what their motives were. We, we sent them maybe 15 emails to ask them to comment on this, and they refused. Um, and there were numerous examples like that, where essentially, uh, you know, British professionals were kind of cheating, uh, 
confidently assuming that, that, that no one was ever going to mark their homework because who the hell is going to wade through all of these incorporation forms for, for these companies? And, and obviously we went to the president of Azerbaijan's daughters who didn't want to talk to us, but nor were the London law firm. And there were all sorts of kind of examples like that. We, we, we found one uh, basically law, law company, um, company uh, sort of formation agent in the Isle of Man that did all of the Russian crooks and the Russian politicians. All of this money was going via the Isle of Man. And there were people called Peter and John and Alex who were acting as nominee directors for these firms where, where we could see huge money volumes from Russia. Most of it black money was then going into the Isle of Man and then disappearing into the BVI. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know. But I, I assume that the, these people are pretty well rewarded for what they do. But it, it seemed to me that... In some cases, it was illegal. In some cases, it was perhaps on the boundaries of legality, but it was certainly kind of unethical, in my view. The other thing um, I, um, or we, I think we discovered, was that previously, I, I had thought, perhaps naively, that, that the offshore industry was kind of, at the kind of minor, it was at the edge of the, of the kind of financial system, that it was a sort of small part, basically, of the kind of global economy. And we looked at this stuff, we looked at these documents, we looked at the volumes, we, we crunched on the data, and basically we concluded that, that offshore kind of is the economy. It, it is the global economy. Um, and um, that, that, that there's a kind of, there's a sort of shadow economy, which I'm sure you all, all, all know about, involving, if you believe Gabriel Zuckman, who's done a study on this um, in the States, involving trillions of dollars of, of money, which is kind of not going through uh, sort of state budgets, it's basically being hidden, it's being stashed away. Um, and th this was kind of extremely um, revealing as well. And in fact, my, my former boss at the time, Alan Rusbridger, um, did two very good essays for the New York Review of Books on the Panama Papers. He sort of reviewed all of the kind of contemporary literature on this. And I think if, if anyone wants to kind of have a kind of overview, um, uh, his, his essays are a very good place to start. Um, so, so, I mean, th this, was, this was depressing. Um, there were a few things which were some way, in some way consoling from the Panama Papers. Um, we got a lot of the kind of chatter, the email correspondence between wealth asset managers and their super rich, their ultra high net worth individual clients. Uh, and the, the, the thing which is kind of consoling in a way for, 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 for all of us who pay our taxes, right? Because what we learned was the super rich don't pay tax. They've exited from tax. And they, as Donald Trump says, you know, I'm smart, you know, that's why I don't pay tax, right? I'm clever. Um, that they all had that sort of attitude. Um, but we also discovered um, from about sort of 2007, 2008 onwards, uh, the, these very rich people invested in offshore were getting nervous. Um, and they were worried about OECD, uh, there was a lot of um, email correspondence after David Cameron said in 2013 he was going to act against offshore. Um, and we found that, that very rich people were doing things like uh, inventing names for themselves. When they, when they called their asset manager, instead of saying, you know, it's Julius here, they would say things like, I kid you not, it's Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> so the names they came up with were not very imaginative. So we found Harry Potter. We found Winnie the Pooh. Uh, <laughs> We found someone who was a tax lawyer from Barcelona who called himself Isaac Asimov. Um, we, we, we found people using subterfuge, um, paying Mossack Fonseca large sums of money to set up anonymous email accounts. Um, even um, 
uh, paying Marcel Fonseca um, a special uh, a special fee, which was about twenty thousand dollars a year, to do what Marcel Fonseca called a natural beneficiary service, which was basically to get someone who I think was Marcel Fonseca it was uh, uh, Ramon Fonseca's. Um, uh, 80-year-old uncle to pretend to be the beneficiary of a company. So not only would you provide fake nominees, you would provide fake beneficiaries uh, as well. Um, and so, th so the rich were nervous. We found that there were very wealthy Italians who were so afraid of the tax police that whenever they drove to see their banker in Switzerland, they would leave the Lamborghini behind and they would take the Opez Mini uh, and, and, and because they were worried about being spotted. Um, and so they had all this money, but some of them were not entirely enjoying it because they were feeling the heat. So that, that was one slightly consoling thing. I think another kind of consoling thing um, was uh, the fact that these leaks that we keep on getting, uh, perhaps this is not consoling for you, but it's consoling for me as an investigative journalist, they keep on happening. We had WikiLeaks in 2010, we had Snowden in 2013, um, we had Panama Papers in 2015, and I you know, I'm not revealing any great secrets. If, if, I, if I tell you, there will be more secrets coming from the banking industry. There will be more leaks, and that's just the nature of the world we live in. We've had a huge leak this week from the CIA, uh, which WikiLeaks is, is sort of joyfully publishing, and we all now know that if you've got a Sony TV, then the microphone can be turned on remotely and so on. So we're, we're living in a golden era of leaks, even though I would say the economic model for, 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 for journalism, for, for newspapers, is kind of broken. So we have no money but we have more material to investigate than ever before, which is sort of a paradoxical situation. Um, just, just a couple of last things. I mean, o on the leak thing, um, I would say, you know, wh when you are corresponding internally, if you work for a bank, I, I would bear in mind that at some point your email might leak, at some point. I mean, I might not get it, someone else may get it, but do not treat email as a private medium anymore. I think if you think it's private, you're kind of, you're kidding yourself. If, if, it, if you want it to be private, then I would say use PGP. It's called Pretty Good Privacy. It's a very easy program you can download. You send your email as normal, but it's just encrypted. You send it to someone else. They need to have your public key. You can give them their pu your pub public key and you just exchange normally. I would say that about 35% of the email I send now is, is encrypted. Um, so assume everything you do may leak. I mean, some of the stuff in Mossack Fonseca, in Panama Papers, you know, you had colleagues slagging off another colleague by email. You know, don't do that. <laughs> I mean, don't do it because it's bad internally, but don't do it because it may, you know, it may, may appear at some point. Um, I, just lastly, a quick word about what I'm doing now. I mean, I've been doing various things on Trump, on, on Putin, but one story we um, looked at, um, what involved um, Deutsche Bank, which has been the only bank recently, which has lent to Donald Trump. Before I get any further, is anyone here from Deutsche Bank? Oh, you are. Are you you're still working at Deutsche? You are. Okay. Well, I'll just say, <laughs> how do I phrase this? <laughs> well, as you know, Deutsche does lend to Donald Trump and no other bank will lend to Donald Trump. And um, we did a story, I and mean, this is all public domain, we did a story a couple of weeks ago about the fact that Deutsche had conducted a sensitive internal review into its lending to Trump to see whether there was any link with Russia, which um, sources inside the bank were saying that there wasn't, um, but Deutsche lends the entire Trump family, essentially. And what, what we found mystifying, and the reason we investigated this, was that other people um, also found it mystifying inside the banking industry and inside Deutsche, was that um, in 2009, Donald Trump refused to repay um, a loan, $40 million, to Deutsche. 
um, and sued the bank, saying that it had co-contributed to the uh, financial crisis of 2008 and the global recession, and that Deutsche owed him $3 billion. Uh, uh, and then in 2010, there was a settlement. And then, after that, Deutsche Bank continued to, to, to fund Donald Trump. And we found that anomalous. People we spoke to kind of... Thanks for listening. You can find out more information about attending our talks and events at www.libf.ac.uk forward slash events. Want to get involved? Contact us at podcast at libf.ac.uk.